0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cheo English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your Word. We thank you for the truth it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the profound hope and joy that is contained within this passage today. We pray that you would open up your word to us so that we may understand it, and so that we may be thrilled by your love, and so that we may be sure. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. This one time, we went on a holiday, we packed our bags, we packed the car, we got our stuff organised, and off we went and we drove off into the distance. It's awesome. And then, about half an hour into the car ride, my wife Jane turns to me and says to me, Honey, you made sure to shut the front door, didn't you? I thought about it, I thought about it, and I just couldn't remember. Have you been in that situation? I'm driving, I thought about it, and I thought to myself, I mean, of course I locked the front door, right? It's a natural reflex to lock the front door on your way out, right? But I just couldn't remember for the death of me. So I'm driving, and I had this nagging doubt. As I kept driving, I kept having these visions in my mind of people walking in the front door and taking all our stuff. I mean, there's not much there, but still, just taking all our stuff, all three things that we earn. I'm driving and I had visions of me uh, coming back home after holiday and seeing graffiti all over the wall and everything in the kitchen all shattered and smashed and things like that. As you do, I ended up calling a good friend. Can you go over and check? And he went over and he made sure that the front door was locked and indeed it was locked and it was closed and it was secure. Friends, have you ever had anything like that happen in your life? You go away, maybe on a short trip or a holiday and you leave the house and after you leave, you just can't remember if you left the TV on or the hairdryer on, or the TV on. You can't remember if you've left the oven on. Or maybe you can't remember locking the front door to your house. Or you go away, you're driving to the airport, and you can't remember if you packed your passport. You just can't remember. You think you did it, but you can't remember for sure. Friends, it's a terrible feeling, right? That nagging doubt. You can't shake it off. It plagues you. It eats away at you. You know, lots of people are like that when it comes to heaven. They hope they're going to heaven, they hope they've done what it takes to get there, but they don't know. They're not sure. So they live life with nagging doubts about whether they'll get to heaven or not. Now, to be honest, most people manage to live with their nagging doubt. I guess they just ignore the issue, where well, they just suppress it in their heart and minds. they just try to ignore it. But it's kind of like trying to hold a basketball underwater. It kind of keeps popping up in your life here and there. This nagging doubt. Several years ago, I remember meeting with a very elderly lady at my previous church. Uh, she was very elderly. She was very unwell. Uh, it was a long time since we've seen her at church. Um, and I met her, and she said to me, Matt, I don't think I'm going to live that much longer. And she asked me, can you please pray at my funeral? And I said, of course. I'd be honoured to pray at your funeral. We talked about it for a while. We planned a funeral. And then I asked her, are you scared of dying? And she said, yes, I am. And I asked her, I said, when you die, do you think you'll get to heaven? And she said to me, I'm not sure. I hope so but I don't know. Now, I'm sure that this lady is a Christian. I know that she's trusting in Jesus. And when I asked her, I said, when I said, are you trusting in Jesus? She said, of course I'm trusting in Jesus. But still, she wasn't confident that God will accept her into heaven. Friends, there are a lot of people like that. And at times, in people's lives, when it pops up, it's a real worry. This lady was weeping and weeping as we spoke. And fair enough too, I think. I mean, it is a real worry, right? It's much more important than whether or not you left the front door open. When you've got nagging doubts about this, this is very serious. Because right now we're talking about where you will be forever, for an eternity, where you will be on the other side of death. So, what about you? What about you? Are you sure? that God will accept you into heaven when you die? Are you confident? Or do you still have some nagging doubts about that? In Romans so far... Paul has been discussing our relationship with God. He's shown us that all people have rejected God. Uh, He's shown us very clearly we don't love God, we don't obey God as we should, and therefore, God is angry with us. He's righteously angry with us. And then Paul has gone on to show us that there is nothing we can do to fix our situation. No amount of religion, no amount of good works, no amount of obedience, no amount of anything else can fix up our relationship with God. But the great news is, God has done something for us. God has come in the person of Jesus and he has died as a sacrifice in our place for our sin. Jesus paid the full price that we should have paid. And so now, as a free gift, we can be what Paul calls redeemed. We can be bought out of slavery to sin. We can be rescued from God's anger. We can be what Paul calls justified. That is, put in the right with God, pardoned for all that we've ever done wrong. It all comes to us, Paul tells us, as a free and a generous gift from God. It comes to us by what Paul calls grace. Grace. And the only way we can receive it is just to receive it, to accept it like a gift, to believe what God says, and then to depend on Jesus. That's how you receive this gift. And that was Paul's point in chapters one to four. I've summarized the first four chapters of Romans for you. We've all sinned, but we can all be justified freely through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And I think a good summary verse is there in chapter three. Turn back a page and look with me at Romans chapter three, verse 23 and 24. I think a very good summary verse of the first four chapters is found in Romans chapter three, verse 23, 24. I'll read it for you. It goes like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's chapters one to four. Now, in chapters five to eight, Paul moves on in his thinking. Paul moves on to consider some of the implications of what he's been saying to us in chapters one to four. Now that we have been justified by grace through faith, so what? Now that we have been saved, so what? What does it mean? What does it mean for our lives today? What effect does it have on us as we live our lives? And you can see the transition there in the first phrase of chapter five. You can see it there. Chapter five, verse one. Look with me there. Chapter five, verse one. You can see the transition. Paul says this. This is a great transitional statement. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and on he goes. Friends, can you see what he's saying? Paul's saying, okay, Given the fact that what I've been saying for these last four chapters is true, here are the implications. Because this is true, here's what it means for you and me today. Here is what being justified means for our lives. This is what it looks like, the implications. And the first implication is this. If this is true, it means the war is over. The war is over. The war between you and God, the war between me and God is over. God is no longer angry with us. God's righteous fury has been appeased. God's righteous and holy anger has been appeased through the death of Jesus and so now we are, quote, at peace with God. This isn't the kind of peace that you feel in a weird weird, subjective way. You walk into a very big museum or or an ancient cathedral and you're like, oh, it feels kind of eerie, kind of peaceful. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an objective peace. War has ended. Peace. Look with me at chapter five, verse one. Therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome. We can go home right now. That's awesome. That's all you need to know. But in verse 2, Paul puts it another way. He talks about a new kind of relationship that we have with God now. It's a relationship that Paul just calls grace. That's what he calls it, because this is a relationship that is so characterized by grace. He says, we've moved into this relationship of pure grace, a relationship where God graciously gives us all the benefits that Jesus has won for us on the cross. It's a relationship where he pours out to us every spiritual blessing. You're not missing out on anything. Paul says that by depending on Jesus, we gain an introduction to this relationship grace. We gain access to it. And he says that by depending on Jesus, this grace is now where we stand. It's where we can live. This is where we can continue in this new relationship of grace. Look with me at verse one and verse two again. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Well, don't you just love it when you make up after a fight, all the married people will be like, amen, right? Don't you just love it when you're fighting, there's tension, there's animosity, and all of a sudden, it's happy days again? I think it's beautiful. I think reconciliation truly is a beautiful thing. Think about how beautiful this is. You've been fighting. It might be with a friend. It might be with a spouse. It might be with your boyfriend, girlfriend. You've been fighting... And then eventually, you make up, you reconcile and then you come back into a relationship of peace and harmony. We see it on a very big scale sometimes in world history. I'm sure you've seen pictures on the internet of people dancing on the streets after World War II. They're dancing because they're overwhelmed with joy. It's a cause to celebrate. It's good news. War is over. Well, for me, I find it especially true in my marriage. Jane and I will be fighting about something and if you've been in a relationship before, you know you can fight about just about anything. We'll fight about things and it's terrible, man. It sucks, right? It makes me miserable. It makes her miserable. Everything's awkward. I can't concentrate on anything else apart from the fight. Oh, just low key. Do you, know, do you know what it's like to write a sermon when you know your wife is mad at you? <laughs> man, it's, it's rough. Do you know what it's like opening God's word and, and praying? It's like, oh, something is not quite right. It's rough. But then when we make up, when peace is restored, it's awesome. It's an incredible feeling of peace, joy, reconciliation. It's a great feeling of relief. Do you know that feeling? It's a feeling when war is over. Paul's saying that's the feeling between us and God. War is over. We're not sinners facing God's holy anger anymore. Why? Because we have been justified through faith We now have peace with God. We're in a relationship now of sheer grace. That's the first implication of being justified. And I think it's awesome. The second implication is this. Paul says, because we've been justified by faith, now the implication is we can rejoice or boast in this sure hope for the future. It's not a questionable hope. It's a concrete hope for the future. We can rejoice now, we can boast now in our sure hope for the future, Paul's saying, if you are right with God, the day will come when you will be transformed into the glorious image of God. The day will come for sure when we will become the people that God intended for us to be all along. There's gonna come a day when you and I are in our resurrected bodies, our glorified bodies. There's gonna come a time where we will live without sin. We will live without suffering in the new heavens and the new earth forever delighting in God. As Christians, that's not a vague hope. That's not an arbitrary hope. That's not a guess. It's not a I hope so kind of hope. It's a sure hope. It's a hope that Paul says we can boast in, we can rejoice in. It's a hope that we can confidently boast in because it's true. Look at verse two again. Look at what he says. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast, some translations say, and we rejoice in the hope of Of the glory of God. As Christians, we have that sure hope that we will be with God forever. It's a hope that makes a difference. It's a hope that means we can boast. We can rejoice in this concrete thing that's coming. It's not the nagging doubts of thinking you left the front door open, it's very different. It's a rejoicing hope. It's a boasting kind of hope. It's a confident, delighting hope. And Paul goes on to say that we can rejoice even when we suffer. He says, we can glory in our sufferings. I don't know if you've noticed, but in this life, things can get pretty sucky sometimes. In this life, as we live as sinners in a sin-tainted, fallen world, because we're not home yet, there's plenty of things in life that go wrong. Plenty of things inside of us, plenty of things around us, but with our sure hope in place, we can rejoice anyway with our certain hope in the promised kingdom, we can rejoice anyway. In fact, with our sure hope in place, we can even start to see the benefits of our suffering. That's what he's trying to say. We can start to see the benefits of our suffering as Christians who are justified by faith alone. We can see how this suffering helps us persevere. It helps shape our character. It even increases our hope. Look with me at verse three and four. Not only so, but we also glory, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. It's true, isn't it? When everything is going well, you don't spend your time longing for heaven. When everything is swell in life, you don't pray, come Lord Jesus, you're too busy enjoying yourself. It's when things go wrong that we start longing for heaven. It's when times get tough that we start longing for our eternal home. That's promised to us. Suffering can actually increase our hope. That's what he's saying. Suffering can increase our anticipation of the coming kingdom. But the beautiful thing is this. Our hope, it's not going to disappoint us. It's not going to fail us. It's not going to let us down. What we hope for will come true. Heaven is ours, guaranteed, That is something that true Christians are sure of. Something that we can be sure of. We can be sure of it, Paul says, because the Holy Spirit makes us sure. Because God's Holy Spirit within us makes us sure of this hope that is to come. God has given to us His Holy Spirit. At the moment of conversion, God's Holy Spirit is in you. God's Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit assures us from the inside out that God loves us. Look with me at verse five, it's there. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Even when things are tough, Christians can keep on rejoicing because we know where our hope is, because we know what's ahead of us. That tells us all the suffering we will see. Some of us will suffer a lot more than others, all the hope and suffering we will ever see, all the pain that we will endure, we as Christians know that's not how the story ends. We know that compared to an eternity of pure bliss and celebration, this is a fraction. This is a small fraction of an eternity of delighting. Paul's saying we know that God loves us. If you're a Christian, you don't need me to remind you that God loves you because you know God loves you because God's Holy Spirit is inside of you telling you that it's true. But the thing is, Paul's trying to say that is not a subjective feeling. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us some kind of a vibe that God loves us. No, it's concrete. The Holy Spirit within us points us to strong evidence. He reminds us of what God has done for us in Jesus. Every single time you're reminded of your Saviour dying for you on the cross for your sin, that's the Holy Spirit at work reminding you of the Gospel. That's not you. That's the Holy Spirit showing you the truth of what you need to know to live day by day for Him. And so... That's what Paul goes on to remind us in verse six to eight. He reminds us of God's love to us in Jesus. First, Paul says that Jesus died for us while we were still powerless, impotent, pathetic. Jesus died for us while we were unable to save ourselves from God's just anger. More than that, while we were still ungodly, while we were still his enemies, Jesus died for us. Look with me at verse six. You see, At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse seven, Paul compares our sort of love with the sort of love we see around us. Now, there aren't that many people out there who's gonna die for their enemies, right? We see it all over the world. I'm not talking just, think Israel, Palestine, more than that. Think of uh, all the political unrest. Think of people who who take sides uh, for various social matters. People are not gonna die for their enemies. In fact, friends, you'll find it hard to find someone who's willing to die for anyone, to be honest, right? Good people, righteous people. People are not that keen to die for others. It's a pretty loving thing to do. Look at verse seven. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. You see the point. Normal people don't generally go around dying for other people, not without a very, very good reason. And you certainly don't find too many people out there willing to die for their enemies. But that's the love that God has shown to us. God comes to us in the person of Jesus, and while we were his enemies, he died for us. Look with me at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's so good, we're gonna read it again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want a summary verse of your life, make it this one. Just look at this verse. How does it summarize God? This is a God who demonstrates, this is a God who loves. This is a God who gives. How does this verse explain us? One word, sinner. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want a reason why you should worship and thank God, here's a good one. While you were his enemy, he still died for you. While you hated him, he still died for you. While you were far away, you didn't worship him, you didn't obey him, you didn't love him, you didn't want him, he still died for you. That is the kind of love God has for you. That hope that the Holy Spirit gives us, it's not a vague, I hope I close the door kind of hope. This is not a subjective thing. This is not a hope that is marred by nagging doubts. This is a hope that is grounded on this powerful evidence of God's love. And then Paul shows us how this powerful evidence of God's love is the foundation for a sure hope. A sure hope. A sure hope for the future. In verse nine and 10, Paul goes on to say that we can be absolutely positive about heaven. We can be certain that we'll be okay when judgment day comes. Friends, what Paul does is, Paul uses a special kind of an argument. It's an interesting thing. This is what I would call a how much more argument. Paul does a weird thing. Uh, For you lawyers out there, this is what you call a a fortiori argument. Uh, I'm more of a nerd than you think. What that is, what that is, he contrasts a big thing with a small thing, all right? You've got to picture this in your mind. What Paul does is he contrasts a big thing that God has done for you with a comparatively small thing that he will do for you. The argument works like this. Imagine up here with me on the front are two weights. A lot of you go to gym. I see it on your Insta stories. There's two plates, right? Now, if I did my homework, I would have actually brought, brought the props, but I'm a lazy and wicked person, so I didn't. But imagine up here with me, I have two gym plates. weights. imagine... On my right, I have a 20 kilogram plate. On my left, I have a one kilogram plate. You you know what I'm talking about, right? The 20 kilo, it's like this big, and the one kilogram one, it's like this big, and it's like thin. Now you can use your imagination. Imagine that you watch me lift this 20 kilogram plate. I do a perfect squat, in fact, I'll do 20 of them. Perfect ones, and I demonstrate to you that I can indeed lift this 20 kilogram plate. So the argument goes like this. I can do this big thing, the question is, if I can lift this 20 kilogram weight, can I, ask, can I lift this one kilogram weight? If I've done this big thing, if I do the big thing, can I do the little thing? Of course I can, of course I can, it's obvious. If I can lift 20, I can lift one. Look with me at verse nine, friends, and answer this question in your mind. What is the big thing? that God has done out of his sheer love for us? And answer this question as well. And what is the little thing that God is now certain to do? Look at verse nine. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? What's the big thing? It's being justified by the blood of Jesus. That's the big thing. The big thing is the fact that through the death of Jesus, we are now at peace with God. We're now in the right with God. Out of sheer love, God takes sinners. He gives his son to die for them so they can be right with him. That's the, big, that's the massive thing that God has lovingly done for you and me. So now, what's the little thing? It's to save justified people from God's anger on that final day. See how the argument works? God loves us so much that he has done this massive thing for us. He has justified enemies, sinners, the death of his son. Now, do you think a God who loves us like that is not going to be able to save justified sinners on his anger on the last day? Do you think God will accept us into heaven? The answer is, of course, he will, of course, he will. It's easy for him, it's 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 simple for him. It's like taking candy from a baby. If God loves you enough to justify you, he certainly loves you enough to bring you into heaven. He's not gonna justify you and then leave you alone. There's an absolute certainty about what's going on in this passage. Paul's trying to say it's a done deal. In other words, stop worrying about heaven if you're a Christian. That's what he's saying. Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10, let me ask you again. In verse 10, let me ask you, what is the big thing and what is the little thing? Look at verse 10. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What's the big thing? We were enemies of God. God loved us so much, he gave Jesus to die for our sin. God reconciles us to himself. He brings a fight to an end. He makes us his friends, so to speak. So now, we have peace with God. That's the big thing. So now, what's the little thing? It's for God to save his friends through his resurrected Jesus. It's to save his reconciled people from his judgment and bring us into heaven. That's a small thing. If God can do this, it is easy. It is simple. His point's the same, isn't it? If we've been reconciled to the death of Jesus, we are sure to go to heaven. We are certain that we are going to heaven because we know we've been reconciled by the death of Jesus. We can be totally confident in other words, God has already done the big thing for us. God has reconciled us. So now we're his friends. We're no longer his enemies. We're now at peace with him. We're not at war with him anymore. Our sin has been dealt with. So there is no way he's not gonna accept us into heaven. The word is confidence. You and I, as a redeemed people, can have confidence. Now listen up when you're struggling you need to remind yourself of this truth. You and I, regardless of your obedience or lack thereof, can be confident because he has done it, because he's done it. Friends, Paul says, in fact, we can be so confident that right now we can be filled with joy. Joy at the fact that we're reconciled. Joy at the fact that we're at peace with the God of the universe. Joy at the fact that we're at peace with the God of Judgment Day. Joy in our sure hope. And that's where he finishes. Look at verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice or boast, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I reckon this is a thrilling passage. This is an awesome passage. Uh, The great reformer, Martin Luther, about this passage, he writes this. The apostle speaks as one who is extremely happy and full of joy. There are no nagging doubts here, are there? This isn't a picture of people stressing and freaking out and worrying and wondering about whether they're going to make it to heaven or not. This isn't a picture of people with nagging doubts. This is a picture of joy, of rejoicing, of boasting. This is a picture of confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus. We know that God loves us. We know that God will accept us. We know that because he's already filled us with his Holy Spirit, so we know that it's true. We already know that it's true. And the Spirit points us to the powerful evidence of God's love for us in Jesus, a love that means God will certainly, certainly, Accept us into heaven because we are depending on Jesus. So we can confidently rejoice even in the tough times, even when we suffer because we know that we have a hope that will not disappoint us. But you know what? This isn't just what Paul wrote. It's not just what he wrote. This is the way he lived. Paul lived it. Did you notice that in our first reading today? Paul and Silas, telling people about Jesus, they drive out a demon and they get pulled up by the authorities. We read that they get stripped, they're beaten, quote, they are severely flogged and thrown into a stinking prison cell. They're put into a cell chained by their feet. And what do they do? All battered and bruised and bleeding and chained up, lonely in a dirty cell. Let me read it for you again. What do they do? Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How could they do that? How can they be singing and rejoicing and praying while they're covered in cuts and bruises, while they're chained up in a jail cell with no idea what's going to happen tomorrow? They might be dead for all they know. How could they do that? Friends, it's only because of their sure hope in Jesus. It's only because these two brothers had complete confidence that God will bring them home to heaven. There's no doubt about it. These two guys, they knew if they died, it just means they could be with their King Jesus quicker. That's good news. Paul and Silas were completely confident of their salvation. That's why exactly why they say to the jailer later on, did you notice he says in verse 31, the jailer says to them, what must I do to be saved? And the brothers, they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul didn't just write about this confidence. He lived it. But he's got the same salvation as you and me, doesn't he? This assurance, this sure hope, this kind of confidence, it's not just for people like Paul. This is an ordinary implication of being justified by faith. This isn't for special people. This is for ordinary Christians. This is the way ordinary Christians should feel. Friend, if you're depending on Jesus right now, then you too can be sure of your future. Heaven is yours. We will be saved. If God can do this, he can do this. The great Charles Spurgeon, great pastor in England 200 years ago, people say he might have been the greatest preacher of all time after Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put it beautifully. Listen to the way he puts it. He says this, I am so sure of my salvation that I could grab onto a cornstalk, swing over the fires of hell, look into the face of the devil, and sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. No nagging doubts there, are there? You know Charles Spurgeon suffered terribly from depression? but no nagging doubts. If we are trusting in Jesus, then we will have peace with God. If we are depending on Jesus, then we will share in the glory of God. We are now seated at the table. Jesus has done everything that is required to make that certain. So friends, you and me, we can be confident, we can rejoice, we can boast, we can sing, we can dance, we can be thrilled in this awesome truth That is concrete. It just breaks my heart when I talk to Christian people who don't have this assurance. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to have nagging doubts and to be plagued by nagging doubts. I want to remind you today, you don't need to be plagued by nagging doubts. Because Jesus has done all that it takes What a tragedy, friends, to miss out on this joy and confidence. So let me ask you again, are you sure you're going to heaven? I'm not asking if you're worthy to go to heaven. I know you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. You keep sinning. I keep sinning. But are you confident because of what Jesus has done? If the Holy Spirit is inside of you, he is filling you with that knowledge that God loves you and that he will never let you go. Friends, are you sure of where you're going? And if so, does it fill you with joy? Because you can be sure. Don't miss out, friends. If you've been justified by Jesus, then know this. God will definitely, 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 definitely accept you into heaven. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our loving heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that when we depend on Jesus, we have peace with you and we can rejoice in the hope of sharing in your glory. We thank you and we praise you that you have showed us such magnificent love in the Lord Jesus Christ and that now you have filled us with your Holy Spirit so that we can know this joy and this peace and this confidence. Our Father, we pray for each person who is here. We pray that you might help us to know with certainty this truth. Father, we pray for those of us who don't yet rely on Jesus for forgiveness. We pray that you would grant them the salvation that they need, that you would grant them the saving faith that they need to trust in Jesus. Father, we pray for all of us. Help us, Lord, to live lives of confidence, and rejoicing before you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.